Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Sick Meets World. This is Gerwin Singh, your co-host for this program. On this episode, I chat with Manmeet Singh, who is a powerful filmmaker, musician, activist, and so many other things for our community. And I chat with Manmeet because not only is he such an eclectic and interesting person, uh, but he has been on the front lines for two critical issues for our community around the world. And those issues are the welfare of Sikh farmers in Punjab and the safety and security of Sikhs in Afghanistan. As you may know, Sikh farmers in Punjab are leading the charge against the Modi government who have passed three agricultural laws that have dismantled key protections for Indian farmers and Sikhs in Afghanistan who already experience horrific discrimination were victims of a brutal terrorist attack by ISIS. Manmeet has been fighting for both of these communities and will be discussing his thoughts and activism on these issues as well as providing his life's journey. He's a super interesting guy and you don't want to miss this episode. So without further ado, here's Manmeet. Manmeet, welcome to Sick Meets World. It's, uh, I'm excited for this conversation because you are a man of many talents. Uh, you are in the arts. You've performed at the Kennedy Center. You're in film. Um, you were just telling me, you know, you were a world traveler. I am certainly not. The most interesting place I've been to is Canada and India. And uh, <laughs> We got to uh, fix that. Yeah, which for being Punjabi is, is not interesting at all. And... Um, you're also uh, an activist uh, by circumstance. So um, very excited to, to hear your thoughts on so many different issues that are facing our community, particularly in 2020, uh, which, were there, which there were some groundbreaking uh, things, historical things uh, that I know that you have some unique insights on. Uh, but before we get your take uh, on those things, uh, I'd love to delve into your background a little bit. Uh, and specifically, um, I'd love to hear about your background in film and how you get, got into all these crazy uh, and disparate uh, things that you do. Yeah. Hey, thanks, man. I've been, uh, you know, we've been going back and forth trying to schedule this. So I'm excited yes. that I have this opportunity and we can talk about issues, film, art, just whatever. Sick meets world. I, I like the your tagline, the, the theme Appreciate of this, because... You know, I, I, be, I believe in living life to its fullest. So I'm like an adventure junkie, right? I, I aspire to write a book. I, I've, I've produced two documentary films. Uh, Harpreet, actually, my other half is the one who is the film talent. You know, she, she does this yeah. for a living. She's a producer for a show and Many called, people don't know. I think she's won two Emmys. Yes, she's, a, she's won Emmy. And uh, she has been nominated several times. And then she's won numerous other film awards from, from uh, Women in Film to IFLA, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but really, for her, it, it was 
you know, the thought process came in back in after 9-11 that, hey, six in the long format documentaries, how many documentaries do we have? For 25 million six, we don't even have 25, you know, world-class documentaries that we can show. These are our issues. This is our belief system. This is our history. Everything is haphazardly put together. So yeah. um, our vision was, was to have this arsenal uh, using the film medium to tell our story to the world. And that's how I got engaged into that. And that's actually, that's how we met because I wanted to always, you know, have my life partner to be someone in the arts and in the creative side. Uh, because mm. growing up, I was all into music. Actually, I was like every other kid who started learning Shabbat and Kirtan and I hated it because it was like, mm-hmm. you know, forced upon you. You got to do this. You got to practice. Yes. You got to perform. You. I was that and, was one of those kids. Right, right. I had, uh, yeah, there was no joy in that process till I got to college. And then when, and, and by the way, I was raised in Dubai. I was born oh, in Dubai. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you know, I, I find it fascinating because I was at my gurdwara here in Maryland, and I, I saw this uncle. Uh, he must be in his like early seventies, and he said, "Hey, I'm from uh, 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 Myanmar, from Burma," and I go to him, "Minglaba," which is hello in Burmese. Yeah. And oh my God, he was so ecstatic that yeah. the other six said "Minglaba" to him, and I wow. sat there thinking, "It's such." such a fascinating journey of Sikh pioneers who go through, you know, he was in Burma, then went to India, then, then went to Pakistan, and then the partition happened, then went, to the, uh, went back to Burma, and then, you know, through all of these different journeys, London, and then somehow ends up in Maryland. You know, he's changed so many countries. And, you know, I was born in Bombay. I moved to New Delhi when I was a little kid. Age three, we moved to Dubai. We were raised in Dubai. Gulf War happened. We came over here. We traveled. I went and lived in India for a year just to experience India. But yeah, so it's really fascinating. When you say Sikh meets world, you actually feel that Sikhs as a people are actually, it's an immersive worldly experience. They're all yes. over. And yes. I remember in um, in uh, nine. Early 90s, my father went. Uh, it was like five of these pioneers from Dubai. They wanted to buy land in Bolivia. So a jatta of like 10 sort of, you know, let's go to the greener pastures went from Dubai to America and then went down to Bolivia to buy forest land for, to start lumber kind of work. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and uh, once they got there, of course, there were other six who beat him to it. And my own uncle, you know, he lives in Chile in Santiago, my mom's cousin. So it's just so fascinating, this desire that really started from Gunanak Devji, right? Who traveled yes, exactly. on foot far and wide in search of the truth, in search of experiences, to share his ideas, to, to have dialogue, to communicate ideas and concepts and experiences with a musician, right? So I mm-hmm. think the sick meets world is because, you know, within us, this whole sense of exploration is, is always there. So I appreciate that. Hand. I appreciate that. Our co-founder, Sean, came up with that name. And I thought it was a, an adept name uh, for the exact reasons that you said, because our community is really, you know, obviously we originate from Punjab and in India, but we're really people of the world. 
and that we are open to everybody in the world. And that really all started uh, with Guru Nanak Dev Ji, who is seeking the truth. And um, he, he instilled in his followers to also be worldly as he is. And, um, and I, I think the openness in which our community um, uh, operates in is due to the travels, extensive travels that he has, he had. And I think, um, you know, given how much you've traveled, I think you can relate to uh, that openness as well in, in a very deep way. Um, so how, how did you get into all these, how did you get into all, all this, the film and uh, performing at the Kennedy Senator and then eventually becoming an activist? What was the path along the way of, of doing all those things? So, um, you know, as a musician, you know, there's this Bauhaus theory about once you're an artist, you appreciate everything art. Yeah. To, and I'm being, uh, I'm not being humble, but I, I enjoy cooking. And mm-hmm. all my friends and family, they're like, they get really excited because I like to, you know, having traveled to all of these places, you want to bring, you know, those foods into your kitchen and you want to experience that. Uh, so, you know, and I enjoy architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, my house was on HGTV as one of Green Builder's homes. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's that. So for me, art and all these varying forms of art and expression uh, is what survives time. You uh, see, yeah, I would agree. Uh, yeah, so you see, utilitarianism. Um, whether you look at from a communist era, whether you look at it from a, um, and I'm talking about architecture, mm-hmm. has an expiration date, but not beauty, not art. So when you design a building, it might be very practical. And that's what the Russians did and even government mm-hmm. buildings in India. But if you look at the historic buildings that have you know, been here for centuries, they were expressive ideas and what-ifs and works of art. And I feel even in the, in the Sikh world, the same way when you look at Guru Granth Sahib and we look at our history, and our history has survived more in the art and poetry form than it has mm-hmm. in using any other tool. Yeah. And for me, because music was, you know, a part of me and, you know, anytime I've got free time. In fact, right now I was practicing with my brother who, all three of our siblings, we're, we're all into music. It's such a large part of when we get together. You know, somebody picks up, you know, I play sarangi. I actually also am, uh, I did an apprenticeship as a luthier making Irish harps. So I did oh, wow. that for a while, which in, in fact, Harpreet thinks it's a great documentary idea, which we are kind of, is the friendship of a sick Sarangi player with a Mormon luthier and we talk about life the challenges that we both were me and my friend were mm-hmm. having and this whole relationship kind of starts with one string so on the Sarangi mm-hmm. we have these gut strings and that yeah. string was missing and I met him and and I was like what a great workshop and I started helping him make Irish harps some of them went to Ireland some of them so 
So he had his own turmoils and tribulations of life. I had my own things going on. And we just thought this healing through music was just a wonderful story. And you, and then later on, I found out that uh, he was actually raised in Pakistan. So he was very familiar with the six and good friend of mine, Rick Kemper here in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, just so much to be explored through music and it heals in so many ways. And, it, and that's why perhaps Gunan Devji said, hey, I'm not taking a soldier. I'm not taking a, a chef. I'm taking a musician with me on all of these journeys. And when mm-hmm. you go camping, there are some people who always bring a guitar. So because music was in there, it had to be, okay, what next? You know, and, and then my, you know, I can talk about music drum rocks. Maybe there should be a whole music session of what are these rocks? What is this mystery that people yeah. talk about? How do, you, how do you better appreciate music, whether it's Hindustani classical, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, Western classical or jazz, etc. What are these instruments in, a, in this whole phenomena, how it's incorporated in the Guru Granth Sahib? So, well, that's not the topic for today. But anyways, because of that, you know, I always got a great platform in our Gudwaras. You know, they were like, okay, back then when I came to the U.S., I still remember uh, during Guru Nanak Dev Ji's Gurpurb, I wasn't getting a ride. Uh, my college was two hours away from the Gurdwara and my ride was leaving the day before, but they never heard me sing. So I sat down and I, and uh, they put me next to the kids to play tabla with them first. I said, okay. And... I sat down on the tabla and I, I was like, okay, man, let me, this is your time to <laughs> dress to impress, kind of. Took off. I did a Shabbat. The Pardan of the Gurdwara came. He's, he came right as I was like, not, I didn't even say Fateh to get up. He's like, just stay there. And on Sunday, I'm going to personally drop you off two hours to your college. You're not going anywhere. And oh, it wow. felt great because my parents weren't there. It was nice to know that I got this platform. Now, through that platform, of course, there's, you know, uh, some of the early lessons of activism came from my parents and from what is right and what is wrong and how to fight for righteousness. And even this December month is a Shahadat month. We look, remember the Chote and Vade Sahibzadehs and their history. So it had to do with justice and righteousness and dharam is righteousness. And so that after 9-11 sort of transformed into, okay, we as six, our history, our voice, our issues. It's really important to have a platform to discuss all of this. And what is our story in, in this uh, American melting pot, in this backdrop of red, white, and blue? Where does the six saffron comes in and where, where, where is our little uh, piece of the puzzle? So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's how it That's went a from wonderful... one stage to the other. That's a wonderful story. Uh, to, to your point, actually, interesting on, on interesting point for your documentary idea, maybe an idea to incorporate is, he, you said he was a Martin Luther uh, Protestant. Is that right? No, he's a Mormon. He's a Mormon. Oh, he's a Mormon. Oh, Mormon. okay, yeah. got it. He's Never a, mind. I was, okay. He's a Mormon bishop. And, oh, uh, understood. Okay. Yeah. I was going to make the point that Martin Luther and, and Grunanic were alive at the same time. And uh, yeah. they tried to do similar things. Different thing. Anyway, um, so then obviously, you, had a, you know, your entry into the arts was was music, uh, starting at your Gudora. How, how did you get into film? Was it through your wife or Breathe? Or what drew you to film? Was it, it, it your already 
huge interest in pursuing all forms of art? Uh, was it Harpreet itself? Was it trying to impress Harpreet? You know, what were, how did you get into the film side as well? Well, the film side is, I mean, it's obvious, right? What are the top 10 um, Sikhi-related films? And then you, you're like, what? We don't even, we realistically don't even have 10 films that, mm-hmm. that talk about Sikh. So it's very, very poor, our sense of recording history. There's so much history happening right now around us. You know, whether it was, uh, you know, I, I got involved in politics in India as well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, whether we talk about the Afghanistan Sikh issue thing, right? It's as big as, as the partition happening all over, right? Fascinating to know that there are Sikhs who, for generations, speak fluent Farsi and Dari and Pashto. And that's why Pai Nanlal is in the Guru Granth Sahib in his Farsi sloks and, and his compositions. And a strain of Sikhs, you know, this, the, the Afghan Sikhs, in our generation, it'll be gone. Or in the following generation, it'll entirely be white. It'll be part of history. And mm-hmm. that is that erosion is happening now. And even on the Afghan side, it's happening because they'll, you know, after the six leave, they will, it'll be a hundred percent all Muslim country. So that diversity, you know, it's sad for them to see that, hey man, this is where Afghanistan was. And so from a film perspective, just to capture those sounds from their voices and their dialect, the mm. way, you know, at a wedding, a Sikh wedding, they are having these Afghani songs and they're having Afghani delicacies and yet there are Sikhs who believe in Guru Nanak. Mm-hmm. It's such a fascinating aspect of our history. Mm-hmm. Now, I so, so and, true. Yeah, so I can't be making like Daljeet Dusanj movies all the time or we can't be just watching that. There is an innate desire. Even now, we get so many inquiries on The Widow Colony, the film that we made on The Widows of 1984. So the shelf life of a documentary is much, much greater than any of these um, uh, fictional narratives that are out there. The, the desire to understand a people at that point in time in depth. It can't always be five minutes, you know, sort of uh, YouTube videos or Facebook posts, you know, uh, a deep dive into the length, breadth, and width of, of a Sikh era, a Sikh history. It's essential. Um, I'm a collector also. I've got helmets from the time of uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. I've got coins and some medals, etc. And you, we are always grabbing these insignias and these markers of our history, whether they're at Smithsonian or Victoria Albert Museum or whether through the Kapani or the Tour Collection or all of these coffee table books that fortunately it's, it's a, such a blessing to have them. You know, I have everyone that's ever been published. But we are putting these little shreds of history together to discover our people and who we were and all of that. And then today, we're not creating anything that our generations a hundred years from now can cherish. So what are we preserving today? And that's, even though we are very educated, we are affluent, we have the bandwidth to invest in recording today's history, we're still not doing that. And that's a tragedy. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I was actually glad you brought that up. I was actually thinking about something along those lines just a few, moments, a few days ago. Um, the degree, I was thinking about how much 
things are moving to, I don't want to say, say film, but video and how much people are willing to consume video over reading. And um, in some cases, because video is, is a better medium, you get more information and it's less tiresome uh, to consume something visually uh, versus reading it. And more people are willing to interact with it because it's less tiresome. And I was thinking about, you know, how much more you can get from video and, and that stays preserved, that can resonate throughout the ages, because in a way you're almost like, it's like you're there. Like you said, you can hear the sounds, you can see the people, uh, you can, you can, you can, you know, it doesn't feel so detached. Um, like when you read a book about history, um, sometimes the people that you read about or the stories seem too fantastical or too detached from your day-to-day reality. But then if sometimes, you know, if, I'm not sure if, if you've seen like colorized photos of, I'm not even talking about video, just colorized photos of people that lived long time ago, hundreds of years ago. It just, it makes it seem like, oh, you know, this person, you know, Abraham Lincoln was just a person. He's not like this tall tale uh, that you read about in the history books. Um, it, it, it makes things more, um, it just, it makes things more real. And, and the last point I would make is, you know, one, one thing project that we did that I was actually very hesitant to do myself, and I was hesitant, I would say even just till a few months ago, was the Guranonic documentary that we did. And um, he's doing a documentary, is, is, uh, as you know, is no easy task. It's very time-consuming, very expensive. Uh, but in the end, I'm, I'm, you know, one year later, I'm happy that we did it because there was no English documentary in Guranonic, and now there is. and hopefully. Um, future generations can expand on that and, and uh, go even deeper than what we did. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, you really spoke to my heart right there in terms of how important it is to, to capture many of the things that you articulated. Yeah. No, it's, um, I cannot stress the fact that, let's take an example of uh, the widow colony. Widow Colony was shown in the top tier festivals in the world. It was shown at the Parliament in UK, in Canada, uh, on Capitol Hill, at <laughs> prestigious museums, etc. And it talked about the widows of 1984. It is, and it was our attempt as to not sensationalize the issue at 84, but not just talk about suffering, but also an analysis with subject matter experts. And we thought this will open up a whole flurry of other people making documentaries on these issues. We were like, okay, everybody's going to start doing it. And to our dismay and disappointment that till this day, uh, almost uh, 18 years later, yeah, we've not, uh, yeah, 15 years later, it's it's not happened. And it's kind of sad because I thought uh, more and more people would delve into other facets of 84. And there are so many. You know, uh, our focus was New Delhi, of course. But if you go into Punjab, the dynamics are very complex. And it's it hasn't been done. And uh, I really hope uh, that 
just like the British lottery fund over here, some affluent sex feel that, okay, we have to have to really, instead of just having film festivals and add a boy, you know, slap on the back for, you know, uh, smaller endeavors, we really need to have this narrative recorded for generations to go in. Like today, you know, if it's Jalayamala Bagh or the partition of 47, they're just a handful of people still alive to have give you the firsthand experiences of what they went through. Soon in my lifetime, anybody who lived through 84, it's like our nephews and nieces have no idea when we, you know, the passion that we have for 84. And mm-hmm. for them, it was a thing of the past. And they will not have that sensitivity or compassion to those who mm-hmm. went through the suffering of 84. Yeah. So we're going to lose all of these widows in New Delhi. Half of the ones that are in our film are no longer. I mean, they've aged and passed away. So it's time is of the essence to to make a move on recording this re- recent history. I, I fully agree. And, you know, I tried to capture my grandfather's 1947 story and the weekend that I was supposed to go to Florida to interview him to Tampa, where you're at right now, he slipped, fell, and had a horrible accident and passed away a year later. In the oh, intervening God. time, he couldn't uh, speak. And um, all that history was lost. And then I was going to go to his brother's. And um, um, a year and a half later, I came, moved back to D.C., moved to Cleveland. I was going to interview his brothers. Then both brothers passed away within a month of me living there. So all that history of 1947, which along with 84, was an earth-shattering event for the community, um, just didn't get recorded on my family side. Yeah, the first person narrative is gone. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, great tragedy. And and all you have is what people remembered from the stories, which is, it's not the same as recording it, like you said. It's just not. Um, Well, I want to turn to, so we talked about how you got into music, how you got into film. How, how did you get turned to activism? And I, I, for a lot of six, activism is a uh, a natural pursuit of uh, of who we are. But uh, many people turn to it in in a different way, uh, their own unique way. And uh, I'd love to explore how you were able to get into uh, that. Uh, you know, given uh, your artistic career. Yeah. So. Um... You know, you have to, as uh, an activist, you have to draw a periphery of this is my scope of interest. This is how I will start and finish a project. And these are these will be my three or four accomplishments as an individual or as an organization. So from an 84 perspective, I wanted to bring issue of, of the six. I would say about 10, 15 years ago, nobody wanted to hear about it because there was so much stigma and there were there was burnout and there was a, a lack of trust because they were like, okay, they're just going to ask for funds. We've sent so much funds. We have no accountability. So yeah. we just wanted to convince people that we're not funding or helping the issue. We're just recording it. And that was a novel concept. People couldn't wrap their heads around, okay, why do you need to do that? But so we kept pushing then after that, we started working on the farmer issue and, and our film that it was launched in 2011, you know, nine years ago, we started working on the issue even earlier than that. Uh, so we've worked in the field in Punjab on this uh, starting 2008. And over there, we were trying to bring the issue of farmer suicides, which is still a very worrisome phenomena. And we figured that we can't bring people 
to the villages in Punjab because they have such a short amount of time and they go to India a week, maybe two weeks at the max with kids. So they're going to be stuck in their Darbar Sahib tours and family commitments and their weddings and all of that. So we thought film would be a powerful route to bring that. And then it will be a tool for others to start working on on helping with these lives. So it's, you know, you see suffering and then you just, you know, maybe it's the soft side of you. You're like, man, I need to do something about it. And um, and my family knows. I mean, when I look at an issue, I'll be like, okay, I'll do it. what everybody else does is, you know, fill out the petition, forward the information, educate myself, share sympathies, have conversations <laughs> about it. And then it's decision point. Then Harpita, like, should we, should I invest? Because, because uh, in March of this year, I'll use the Afghanistan issue as an example. Uh, I had no idea. I just saw one video of Arinder Singh who lost his daughter, Tanya Gore, in the attack on March 25th in Kabul, Afghanistan at the Shor Bazaar Gurdwara. So the way he's wailing, you know, you know, you just go to Gurdwara one random day and you lose your father, mm-hmm. you lose your daughter, your wife, your father-in-law, all shot. Everybody. This. Yeah. You know, so within minutes, your life is turned upside down. You had no inkling when you were getting ready in the morning that this is going to happen to you. And then you, you lose a, it's, you know, it's, he kept saying, you know, why don't you take my life? Just take my life. You know, he told the guy, it was just the way he was, you watch that video. And I told Harpreet, I'm like, listen, I cannot not do anything about it. And, and you just jump in and, and say, okay, I got to, I have a vision that I want to see this guy and his family come to safety, whether it's at the New York JFK airport coming in and starting a life away from all of this danger or do something for the community there. And uh, I just started randomly, mindlessly calling any Afghan sick that I knew. Then one led to another, another led to another. And finally, I made the right connection of people who have been helping them since the Mm -hmm. 2018 attack and who are helping them now. And uh, then I started inquiring who else was helping. I thought the whole community would be, just like right now with the farmer issue, everybody's engaged. I thought everybody would come together, you know, Afghan mm-hmm. sick issue really didn't create that ripple effect as the farmer issue currently has. Mm-hmm. So at that time, it was, um, it, it was just a handful of people. I would say our team would be less than 10 people. Some of my old political contacts, both East Coast, West Coast, who I knew if I needed money or, or buy-in from Gurdwara's you know, funds, etc., these guys would be able to pull the strings. But I also needed the help of, uh, fortunately, Godsend was Rajdeep Jolly and Deepak Alwalia, yeah. both attorneys. Phenomenal. Yeah, player. workaholics. And they really, really, you know, burned the midnight oil in terms of making sure, you know, from a legal perspective on how to engage with people on political politically on Capitol Hill, et cetera. So they started taking a lead in that. Yeah. And then I was on the phone on, on a daily basis with three or four contacts I'd made. And, and there were other sick organizations and there were certain interesting individuals who were talking about, you know, we're going to go in and hire a jet and, you know, evacuate these people. They were like, it was too James Bondy. And, and, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I have no idea what you guys are talking about. 
you are in a different world and <laughs> just don't announce this online because you're going to make everybody <laughs> look like an idiot. So it was, yeah. it was, it, but anyways, to everyone's credit, nobody was, there wasn't that much finger pointing. Most people were, were in collusion and, and they were in sync in terms of making sure that uh, we are not roadblocking any other organization. But yeah, the 10 or so of us, uh, it was just a task force of uh, individuals. There was no organization kind of. We had Man, uh, Manmeet Singh Polar Foundation, uh, yeah. one or two, two people from WSO because they had done some work and MBS. Uh, Manmeet Singh Polar, of course, I'm Manmeet, he's Manmeet. We were good friends and, and I didn't know how yeah. much engaged he was in this till, till I started very working engaged. in this group. Yeah. So uh, you know, I knew Manmeet actually very well. And uh, when he started setting up his organization, it was, it was obviously not con- called the Manmeet Buller Foundation because he was alive, but he's an, he was an MP in Canada. I, I just want to share him because he's a very inspiring individual. And, um, and he was wanting to set this up. And I don't know how I got connected with him, but he had requested it that I help him set up this Afghan foundation that he was working on. And uh, we were working on it. He was very passionate about it and uh, felt that he could convince the liberal government to bring more refugees into Canada. And uh, he went to go help somebody on the side of the road as a true sick would who was in need and uh, was tragically killed by a truck oncoming. And, um, I'm very happy to hear that um, that you were his good friend and that you were able to continue um, his passion project forward uh, at a critical juncture. So that's that's uh, heartwarming to hear. Yeah. So no, it was. Uh, I felt that you know, there's so many. You got to pick your battles, right? So it's like you know, I wish I could have done more when he was around for the 2018 batch, but this was an opportunity that I was like, okay, I'm not going to let this slide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were some godsend people, uh, Gurvin, I'm telling you, that uh, pretty much said, uh, we are going to sponsor 75 families, pay for their room and board and their transportation to safety. So that's almost a 10 to, in some cases, $20,000 commitment over like a year or two year period. You're, you are financially helping somebody move from one country to another, wrap their affairs. There's COVID happening. There's the threat of yeah. the Taliban, you know, and this was, you know, these attacks were concentrated, you know, three days in a row, they were attacked or there was a planning to really affect these people. And, and of course, during that same time, just shortly after, while we were working on this, there were other attacks. There was an attack that on that nursery in the maternity ward where mm-hmm. children, you know, one day old child was killed and, and expecting mothers were killed. It was, Dastardly, and we were like, okay, these guys are at the mercy of the of Daesh, and um, all of a sudden, you know, all of these terrorist organizations that we hear about on CNN and other news outlets, and and on Capitol Hill, you know, the lawmakers trying to counter these uh, insurgents and uh, and uh, terrorists became our enemy number one, and I was like, okay, they are our enemy too, and and it hit close to heart because uh, these people don't see whether it's America or whether it's Sikhs or whether it's Hindus or whether it's history or it's a 
So I told everyone, I'm like, this is the Bamian moment for the Sikhs and Afghans uh, in terms of a culture and a people that all this, there's this mass exodus where we were 100,000 plus uh, back in the 70s uh, and earlier than that. And these people have been there for generations, third, fourth generation, maybe longer. They're Gunanak Devji's. Um, there are places where Gunanak Devji passed through. There were Painan laws and there's a Hindu temple, 1,400-year-old Hindu temple, and there's still a priest over there who does the services. So it's fascinating. In fact, if you, when you go through Kabul, there's a um, hillside, and there was this wall that was a partition at one time, and everybody on one side of the wall was Buddhist, on the other side was Muslim. So that's how many Buddhists used to live over there. And oh, now wow. there is there's no one, you know, there's yeah. no Buddhist whatsoever. So, so anyways, at that time, uh, in this March, we put this team together and started on a daily basis. Either we're talking to people in Kabul or over here, people, mm-hmm. and then all the news agencies to give them information. It was a very stressful time because we were like, you know, we cannot uh, allow another death to happen on our watch and did everything. And this is where I think political might and political might of a community or power helps us because all all we had to do was call Canada and we've got our MPs and MLAs and there was a point where where there were given threats in um, Jalalabad and uh, and Harjeet Sajjan was approached by the Canadian citizens and he called his counterpart in Afghanistan and said that you got to do what you got to do to protect your citizens. And right away, he talked to the defense minister in Afghanistan and, and protection was provided to these six right outside the Gurdwara. And That's amazing. we were like, dude, if we didn't have these people there, it, you know, we we're always like, oh, for here you go, political donation, here you go, $100,000 check. Uh, donation, food drive, here you go, you know, another check. But when it comes to asking and, you know, getting something for ourselves and we're not being selfish, this is, these are dire situations. It's so hard to get anything out of it. That's why your engagement and every Sikh who got involved with, with the lawmakers and with the Biden campaign, I thank them tremendously from the bottom of my heart because if there is... This is, for the first time, we have a legitimate scenario of sick refugees who need a safe place. In the interim, a lot of them might be in India, but they still don't have an apparatus so that they can start on with their lives. So Manmeet Singh Polar Foundation gave, the, gave a few sponsorships. Uh, WSO is working on that. But I feel truly that the Afghanistan mess the U.S. engagement over there is partly to be blamed for that. Our cluelessness on how to bring closure to that is partly to be blamed for all of this. And therefore, U.S. authorities are partly responsible to bring closure to these, uh, I think, 700 Sikhs and Hindus uh, to bring them, you know, we've got refugees coming from all over the world. But this is a leg- mm-hmm. legitimate problem that we created. And we... The least we can do is for these people to get on with their lives after all of these killings is providing them a safe haven. And there are communities, Sikh communities and Afghani communities who will really take care of them, that they are no burden to the U.S. taxpayer, except just bring them over here and we'll take care of the rest. So uh, I, I fully agree. Shot. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. There's another political issue, and I want to get back to this political PowerPoint at the end, but 
There's another political issue that, as you alluded to earlier, they've worked closely on that is uh, Rockter community, which is the farmers issue. So do you want to give people a run through of what the issue is about, why it's so important to our community, and where it sits today? Okay, before I, you know, people ask me, hey, what's going on? And I always have to counter that with the question, what's going on now? Or what's been going on and what's going to go on after, you know, all of these protests that are happening go on. So let's start with a little bit of background. Um, you see in India, right after partition, around the partition time, um, you know, it was all the old Bollywood films had to do with, you know, people dying of hunger, the poor farmer is dying, Every everything the landscape was the villages, not like today's Bollywood. And in fact, to the point that in the 50s, Mother India made it to the Oscars. And if you haven't seen Mother India, you know, it, 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 I, I recommend that. It's a fascinating film about poverty in the farmland and mm -hmm. how that film had to do with, with this poor farmer whose land is being stolen and he's been exploited. And by the 1% of that time, and wow. it made it to the Oscars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and what a, what a story that echoed through history. Yeah, and in fact, we used that one scene in our trailer uh, for, for our previous version of the film called The Suicide Alley. And, and now the film is called, it's available online, A Little Revolution. If you just, uh, on YouTube, if you do A Little Revolution, Heartbreath, uh, it'll bring the film up. And it's a fascinating film of, of, uh, of the impact of suicides on the farmer's family and the government's attitude to, towards this. So it's a, it, it, it's a fascinating film and a fascinating approach. So during partition, um, and the government decided we need food security. And how do we counter this? How do we make sure that our citizens aren't dying of, of hunger or famine? And at that time, in fact, uh, in Bangladesh, Ravi Shankar even did a concert with the Beatles for Bangladesh where there was a great famine in which uh, the numbers are all over the place. The official number is 38,000, but really it's believed that almost a million people died of starvation, oh, which wow. is mind-boggling that people, it wasn't the lack of, of food, it's the lack of the availability of food. And even Churchill, as you know, is is ridiculed because a lot of provisions and a lot of produce that was made, you know, that was procured from, from Indian soil was sent to the, to the theaters in, in the Second World War versus, you know, providing for the locals where they were dying. He didn't care for that. He just wanted to make sure that there is, you know, food for food the soldiers. soldiers. Yeah. So anyways, at that time, um, it was decided that we needed a green revolution, something, something that would change and make sure that people aren't dying of hunger. And M. Swaminathan was given this mission. It was discovered that 2,000 farmers were, were leaving farming on a daily basis. And they said, we can't let this happen. Come up with a system that people stick to farming and it's profitable. So they really went into two directions saying that for Indians, uh, they identified 23 crops and these are like, you know, your, your chawal, your rice, your wheat, your, your flour, your dals that we have, uh, some oils. That if you had these basic 23 things, 
Yes, it covered North and South India because of the different, uh, uh, you know, eating habits, etc. That you would be able to sustain yourself. Okay, you're not going to die. So they incentivized these 23 crops and said, okay, we will come up with something that was called MSP. MSP is just the same thing as your shirt that you buy at Macy's, right? You've got an MSRP that this is the this is the recommended sell price and you think it's mm-hmm. a great deal because you're getting 60% off. This is the reverse of that where the farmer is being told that, hey, I the government will give you at least this much so you can make X amount of profit so that you don't quit farming and go to like a labor job in the city, whatever. So they incentivized the farmer and it was uh, somewhat profitable. And then the hardworking Punjabi farmer, of course, figured out a way to maximize their yield on their given acreage so they can have more and more profit. But that didn't last too long because the because of the input, this formula never changed. It was supposed to be all your inputs, the cost of your seed, the cost of your fertilizer, uh, pesticide, et cetera, et cetera, all, you know, diesel costs, uh, labor costs, your land rental costs, et cetera, capital investment. So now you're getting into, okay, the economics of farming. So it worked for a while. And then things started nosediving because there wasn't a diversity of how a farmer's son was a farmer or a soldier whose son was a farmer, 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 a soldier, and land holding started shrinking. Expenses started going up. Over time, the skew between the right level of reimbursement for the farmer versus versus, uh, land holdings, etc. started going awry. The whole formula was out of whack and people started committing suicide. And there was a lot of coverage about suicides in middle India, in Andhra Pradesh, in Maharashtra, and in other states, but not enough on Punjab. And that's why we focused more on Punjab and Haryana than we did in some of the other states. When we started working on the film stuff, there was hardly any discussion on Punjabi farmer suicides. Okay? Wow. And uh, it was no political party picked this up. And that's why we pushed, pushed, pushed hard and work with Punjab's think tanks in Chandigarh and work with channels, etc. And our primary go-to organization was Baba Nanak Educational Society under Inderjit Singh Janji. So his daughter had done tremendous amount of work and we dedicated our film to her labor of love that she did in counting these suicides. So in fact, 1984 was related to to uh, farming issues. In 1982, there was this thing called Taram Yud Morcha that was started by Baba Jarnail Singh Pindrawale. And the whole idea was the farmer's rights were being suppressed. You were stepping on his throat. And, uh, you know, all of India was built on the farmer's back. And now that, you know, now that you've got Bangalore and Hyderabad and Gurgaon and all of these tech corridors, now that they don't need the farmer, they're just throwing him to the wolves. And this 1% mm-hmm. the Bani's and Indani's are just out there. So instead of improving their lives, uh, we have made it much, much worse, and especially right now with the current government, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Narendra Modi, if you look at the manifesto of the BJP in the, twen- um, there, in the last election, 2014 manifesto, they had said that we are going to engage the M. Swaminathan Commission's report and give 50% on top of farmers' cost as a part of our manifesto and promise to the farmers. Instead of pursuing that commitment, they came up with these three laws. 
Now, there's been enough discussion on this, but for your uh, viewers and listeners' benefit, I will translate these laws into Western terms. Now, the first law is called, uh, it's frequently le- uh, referred to as the MSP bypass law or APMC bypass. It basically is a free trade law. And what we're saying, instead of how I had explained earlier that we were going to give a minimum support price to the farmers, the law basically says it's a free for all. There's a new channel and it's a free trade. Anybody can sell, anybody can buy. Well, here's the problem in this. It's free trade, but there is a a risk where if you tried this in Bihar, which they did, you've got these mega conglomerates who will really come in and exploit the farmers, not give them what their dues are. And the fear over here is once they do this in Punjab, um, you will, the whole economy will collapse in Punjab. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what happened to American farmers. American that's what farming happened to is- American farmers. And that's what they're saying. We want American farmers. But in America, they're, they keep using the example that we've got 2% in America yeah, in the farming yeah. sector. We want to do this. But we have a India different economy different. than India. We have a very different economy than India. The diversity of education, exactly the, the allocation of resources, the 100%. allocation of other niche natural resources, and the, the public infrastructure of social security. So yep. you have the ability to transition uh, the population into other Much lines. easier than India. It seems to me that if, if the Indian government wants to pursue such a policy, it cannot be pursued. I mean, you tell me because you, you're closer to this issue than I am seems to me it cannot be done as swiftly as one quick law and that it would take a sustained level of investment in the people that are protesting to give them more options in their life. And, um, you know, Punjab, from my understanding, from people that I talk to, there has been underinvested in. And, um, it, you know, it, it, as you said, I think it might be difficult to take away people's livelihood like that. Yeah. And so uh, all I don't know. You tell me. You're the no, no. expert So here. All, all three of these laws are connected. See? Yeah. It's, it seems like there are three laws, but really it's an agenda. Now, the mm-hmm. second thing is you have given them absolute free reign in terms of hoarding. Now, for some people, they'll be like, in America, you've got huge silos in the farmlands, okay? Yeah. In Punjab, that's not the case. You've got these Adanis who are building these mega storage facilities. So they are essentially becoming the cartel, just like the OPEC in the Middle East. They are becoming the cartel of how to control the markets. Now, if you look at the stock, just look up, look up XOM, ExxonMobil. You've got Chevron. You've got the fossil fuel consumption that has been there forever is transitioning, especially in this COVID year. You know, ExxonMobil took a big hit, all of these fossil fuel. So therefore, the refineries that are owned by the Reliance Corporation took a hit. And now they're saying, okay, we need to adjust our portfolio. What is the baseline that will never move? People have to eat. Okay, we are going to add that to our portfolio. So that Mm. agenda over there is clear, present, and dangerous for the farmers. And the third is to remove any accountability of the contractor. In which case, let's say, let's say uh, Pepsi goes and says, 
for Lay's potato chips, I need this kind of chip. This is the starch content. This is the kind of tomatoes we want. And this is the kind of chili. These are your seeds. Go ahead and start, you know, harvesting this. Out comes act of God, mother nature, and you have a product in which you are not happy, doesn't meet your quality standard. So you're like, you know what? Chuck it. I really don't care. I, I, you know, you have, and then you tell the, the, the poor farmer that you cannot go to the courts. A district magistrate or a local judiciary is, is assigned to you. And that can be easily bribed by the big corporations. So all three of these, and in the case of the hoarding law or this law, there is no quality control. The amount of pesticide mm-hmm. in the basmati bag that you get at Costco, you have nothing, you have no idea how much, uh, how much pesticide has been used. So there is no quality control. There is no quantity control. There is no fair trade allowance for the farmers. So really, you have opened the Pandora's box and really provoke the farmer and created this new channel in which there are no guards for the farmer. And that's why there's this hue and cry because all hell is broken loose. Mm. And so that's why if you see in the recent past, there has never, ever, ever been a protest that big. And when I say big, uh, in my phone calls in the Sangrur area, uh, most of the villages, they have sent five to seven trolleys. When they say a trolley, trolley usually accommodate 20 to 22 people. They're not going to have empty seats in it. Somebody's going to go. Uh, over there, most of them have sent 100 men, about uh, 40 to 50 women. Punjab has 12,700 villages. No self-respecting village will not send a representative and a representative is not going to go by themselves. They will go as a group. So they every so twelve thousand seven hundred, and let's say even a hundred, not a hundred and fifty. Let's say a hundred people have gone from each village. That that says one point two million people have gone to protest, and they are outside the that's Delhi border so, at this point. So that's so many people. <laughs> yeah, but there they're spread so out. Yeah. there's so United. Yeah, I'm saying that's a, a that's a huge protest. A million people is like. Huge. So they, so my yeah. in my conversation and the, with this the photos lady, of oh sorry go ahead I'm just just saying the photos I've seen like the aerial shots of it it looks like you know a new village has been erected in 30 days it's 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 an amazing sight to see yeah so in my conversation with this uh, wonderful lady her name's Dr Pupinder uh, Kaur mm-hmm. and she is uh, under the United Six banner. Yeah. And I said, hey, uh, you know, why don't, uh, you know, what are we doing in terms of their medical needs, etc.? So she said, we cannot set up a tent because this thing is 40 kilometers long. Wow. So the starting point, we have to, we have to put it in a, in a, in a van, all the testing equipment, all the medicines, because they, some of these people are so old, they can't come to you. And we do not have enough of a pathway for all the cars to go back and forth. So we have to, we pretty much do a daily circle of the of 25 miles. We go over there, we give the medicine, and then we move another mile. Or So we are covering a 25-mile strip. And there are four uh, major protest sites. You know, you've got the single border, Tikri border, you've got the uh, Ghazipur border. So these areas are, you can't even put them on one strip. That's the size. Wow. It's a, a temporary city 
for a million people. That's the size. And there's free food. There is free uh, water. There's free medicine. They put tents over there. And it is very peaceful. There is amazing harmony. There's amazing goodwill. And these people are just saying, hey, this is mind-boggling, the asinine attitude of Narendra Modi, who, by the way, was on the banned list when he was chief minister of Gujarat. Till he became the prime minister of India, he could not enter the U- United States. So right. now all of us, and only because he's, he, is, he is the head of, of a, the world's largest democracy, he has, you know, he has the right to come to this country, etc. And they have made that provision. But I fully hope that when he's no longer the prime minister, they put him on the ban list. Amit Once Shah, who's the home minister, yeah. is responsible for the killings. In fact, he was on India Today's uh, uh, cover page years ago. I'll share that with you. Guy's responsible. He's got blood on his hand. And he's the two people, along with the Adani and Ambani, four people control. This is even worse than the colonial power, you know, when India was a colony. And I've said this, that Punjab is not a colony of India and India is not a colony of Gujarat the way it's for democracy and for peaceful progress of India right now, it is crucial, crucial, crucial that this fascist government is removed. True democracy where federalism is there, other states are representative. You know, people in the South, when I was, I spent about six weeks in South India, I must have gone to no less than 70 temples, all the way from Kanyakumari to all the temples in Tamil Nadu, fascinating people. You know, they, the respects, you know, the minute you go to South India, they're like, hey, Manmohan Singh, Punjabi, Punjabi. <laughs> Tremendous uh, respect for Sikhs over there in South India. And, but they have a huge qualm. If you go to Kerala, it's, you'll see huge posters of Stalin and Che Guevara. And mm-hmm. it's like red country. They are staunch, hardcore communists. And uh, Lenin's posters are there. And his, you know, you're like, dude, <laughs> you feel like, you get off on the train and you will see see these red flags all throughout the train station. And you will think that that you're somewhere in some small town in Moscow or right outside Moscow. That's how, how hardcore these guys are. And there's complete dissatisfaction on the way things are running in New Delhi. And uh, the fact that they, they are underrepresented uh, in, uh, in North India. So they, there's definitely a worrisome pattern there. When you go to mm-hmm. eastern side of India... Uh, Nagaland too, right now there are protests where they want separation from India. Uh, uh, Assam, Arunachal Pradesh, you know, they feel that they are different people, they are different race. So India still is is an immature idea. So it is very dangerous to take it for granted and bring in this Hindutva element, and especially for the Sikhs after 84, things are still very raw. And so it's it's walking on thin ice right now. Well, let's zoom back and bring it back home. And we've been talking about two major, um, you know, from the perspective of an American sick foreign policy issue. Uh, but I know that you have uh, some unique thoughts on what we should be doing as six in America about these issues uh, and to be able to influence these issues a little bit more strongly um, then, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, being able to sign the petition or do this or do that. Because obviously not everyone is in, in our shoes where we're having access to lawmakers or um, be able to 
quickly get on the phone with people at the heart of um, these global issues. So uh, do you want to share some of your thoughts on there? Because I think, you know, we were talking about this earlier, and I think um, I think what you would say right, would resonate with quite a large number of people within the United States. So I would say, um, you know, you've got political experience on the Hill, and there are others who have. Uh, one of the interesting organizations that I got to, you know, I was introduced to is Hindus for Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And I would also say Pop and Indus and the India Caucus and the Sikh Caucus, they all ought to understand this is an absolute stupid notion that if you are anti-Modi or anti-BJP, you are anti-India. It is moronic. And if U.S. lawmakers and the right-wing Hindu lobby in this country starts acting and behaving this way, you're going to lose India. With Kashmir, with the things in Punjab, with the, Kash- uh, with the issues in South India, with the issues in the Northeast India, with the issue with the Dalits, with the issue with the, with the uh, Muslims, you, with the issue with the Naxals, and with the issue with, forget all of that, the intellectual progressives, uh, some of some of the most uh, renowned journalists were assassinated in India. You know, you've got Nobel laureates who are telling the world. You know, if you go Amartya Sen, economist, Nobel laureate, Dr. Ma- uh, Manmohan Singh, ex-Prime Minister of India, he was just at the Kisan rally. You've got John Drez, who, who, who has studied these laws. And all of these economists unanimously are saying that this is all garbage, what you're shoving down these people's throat. So therefore, it's imperative that U.S. lawmakers understand that U.S. companies' investment in India needs to be protected. And to protect that and not repeat what's happening in Hong Kong or China or elsewhere, we want to make sure where the U.S. dollar is going, we make sure that those countries make the right decisions. And that's not happening. If political unrest turns into, turns becomes violent. Do you think Google is going to, just right now, there was a huge protest at an Apple plant right now where they put this whole Apple plant on fire. And uh, Mm -hmm. you should look that up right now. And, and, uh, you know, they've uh, suspended all the production of Apple iPhone over there in that plant. Now, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, one of the guys who's working over there happens to be, uh, you know, he, he gave us this information that to undercut China, there is this whole uh, drive that we're going to pull money out and start investing in India. Right. And that's great. It's great to diversify, not put all your eggs in, in one basket. It's great for the people of India. But the problem, the way it, in China is even the poor farmer is making some money and is able to sustain that themselves. But in India, which is supposed to be a socialistic republic, that's not happening. The rich are getting richer. The contractors in the urban are benefiting from it when it comes to farmland. That that erosion, that economic erosion, and they're you know, slipping into deeper poverty is continuing. So I think all of the U.S. lawmakers really ought to take this farmer protest seriously because it's not a farmer's protest. It's about erosion of democracy, where there are a couple of... Even the older people, you can see that iconic picture where he's just being beaten up by a cop and water cannon and all of these. Now, if you are sitting in Tampa and decide that I want to go to protest, 
in, in Washington, D.C. And in South Carolina, on Route 95, you've got water cannons and they derail the whole protest only because you just want to be at a peaceful protest. We can't even imagine that happening. Right. No and way. There, these people, they just wanted to go to New Delhi. How can you barricade people who are just traveling from point A to point B? So there's an absolute tyranny that is being created by Narendra Modi and Amit Shah and the mega conglomerates, the 0.001 billionaire class of India at the expense, you know, this whole illusion is being given that, oh, Hindu thought it's with these are pro-Hindu, whatever. No. They, that is the front. But behind the scenes, it's all money being driven by these, uh, these uh, mega corporations. And I will tell the U.S. lawmakers that if they do not act judiciously, and if they think this is just a blip, they will make a great folly. So to protect U.S. corporate interests and taxpayers' interests, I would say that we need to hold India accountable to make sure that its commitment to democracy doesn't erode because of these, uh, these uh, mm -hmm. asinine stubbornness uh, in, in the way they have behaved in the last month. <laughs> no, By I coming agree. up with laws that <laughs> there's no consultancy mm -hmm. with farmers. It's like you, right? If you're a political mm -hmm. analyst and I come up with law that makes no sense and you're like, right. Dude, you should consult the lobbyists. You should consult uh, IT firm before having FCC go in and make laws that deal with with you know, bandwidth, yeah. et cetera, right? It's no, right. No, totally. India. No, 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 totally. Well, I, I thought what I was also want to probe you on is what do you think we should do in America to build that kind of power to be able to send that kind of message? Because I feel, um, you know, the way that I've been thinking about it in the past few days is, you know, after 9-11 or our focus was just getting to tell people who we are. And, you know, that remains an important uh, mission and is the mission of national sick campaign. But at the same time, I do feel that in, at least in the United States, that there has been a significant amount of progress between 2001 to 2021 in the last 20 years on the acceptance of minorities and diversity at large. Um, and while awareness remains an important thing, because again, people still, their gap between the knowledge of, of six is still pretty high. Uh, I do feel that there is an element of now having to transition to leading more courageously in who we are and advocating for some of the issues that you talked about. So do you have any ideas of how we can start sending these messages um, in an organized and methodical fashion? Yeah, I, you know, I laugh, you know, we, uh, you know how they chant USA, USA, USA. <laughs> translate the chanting into policy, right? Yeah. So I, I've always been of the opinion that Trump is not all bad. There are certain ambitious things and certain, uh, you know, his policy towards bringing troops back home, his policy to protect U.S. interests and show the middle finger to, to people who took the U.S. for a ride. I got to give him, give the man a credit on where credit is due. You know, even a small thing where he, Maternity leave was given to, you know, federal government employees. That wasn't done during the Obama administration, right? right. So I can't say, hey, he's 100% he's perfect. He's far from it. You know, right. you know I supported Bernie and Bernie Sanders, uh, um, you know, is still vocal on, on, on a lot of policy issues. He's, he's, he's very progressive. But anyways, we championed behind Biden. 
And I think you need to, U.S. Uh, lawmakers need to represent the best interest of the country. And when it comes to foreign affairs, no one knows that better than people of those origins. And also, unfortunately, they'll bring those conflicts over here because, you know, you've got the right-wing yeah, yeah, yeah. forces that are coming and influencing, you know, they, in Canada, for example, right? To yeah. say, Trudeau, hey, you know, these guys are all Khalistanis and all that, you know, their attempt to derail that. So I would say that, look at Dilip Singh Son as a great example. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, he was the first brown congressman of non-Abrahamic faith. And he came in and did an amazing job in opening and giving opportunity to Asians. All the progress that he brought was first keeping the American interest in mind and then making this nation stronger and diverse. And we thank him. Since that time, we've not had any person in terms of, of, of Asian uh, descent making that, those level of strides. There have been small incremental, you know, uh, help. Now, I would say, at least from a Sikh viewpoint, the most important thing, we've got so many organizations, every organization is doing some type of charity work, et cetera, et cetera. But it is high time that Sikhs, because our interests are geopolitical in nature, the world is becoming flat. Every time there's something, whether it's the Afghan Sikh issue, whether it's the India farmer issue, or whether it's 1984, or whether it's Sikh issues in this country, you know, we need to make sure that we become politically relevant, whether it's having our own uh, Sikhs in on Capitol Hill, uh, just like they've had tremendous success in London, uh, with uh, MP Desi, whether it's the whether it's Canada, of course, Canada is always the example. But even though we have Sikh organizations here, politically we are very, very, very weak. And right. when and you know when you call make calls, whether it's the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee or the Foreign Affairs Committee, every time I call, they're they're people of every descent, but not from Punjab. And that's why we need to make sure, and I'll say this in Punjabi, that we are the most universal brotherhood kind of, you know, we believe in that brotherhood. So if we are there, we are not just going to be looking for the Sikh uh, angle. It's just like the Afghanistan. I'll tell you, this is the, a great example. I had to write a letter to Amit Shah and somebody asked me in New Delhi that how many Hindus are, are in this Afghanistan pool? Are they mostly Sikhs or Hindus? And I said, this is really shameful for you to ask me this. These guys are going to be killed if they don't rescue them. I don't care if 500 were Hindus and 30 were Sikhs. So even today when Khalsa goes and helps in Syria or it goes helps in South India or it goes and helps in Yemen, or we've got Sikh organizations that go at the World Sikh World Parliament of World Religions, and you know we're point point oh point five percent of world's population, right? Not even one percent, and we have helped the world because we believe in in justice and fairness and all of those 
edicts that have been given to us by Guru Nanak. So that is a great, you know, it's great to give the keys to the house because the Sikhs have been trustable. They've been trustable in India. They've been trustable here in the 50s. And I think we would be great. You know, we have this sort of uh, complex that because of our diversity and our uniqueness uh, that we might be rejected. It is actually the opposite where right now, even the Republican Party, they want diversity. They'll give yeah. you a shot. There's a good chance. There are a couple of good candidates. You know, I joke with, uh, you know, for me, Harmeet Dillon, if she was in a more red state, she'd be, she'd be on the Capitol Hill. You've yeah, got Nikki I have my scribbles with her, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you've got Nikki who's, you know, she got, Eric Trump came in and, you know, was upset that she wasn't vocal enough uh, during the recount because she's aiming along with Romney for, for the ticket in 2024. So everybody's mm-hmm. eyeing. So I would say, you know, even Yuba City, why don't we have Appana uh, Banda uh, from Yuba City where we've got, you know, both money and presence over there or other parts of California or other. So we really, 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 I cannot no, I completely agree. I we completely need to go agree. in that direction. I completely agree. I mean, I think our, the way that we are taught to view the world is as six is really what America is striving to be uh, as a country. It's our, it's our mission statement. Obviously we have not always lived up to that mission statement. Um, for even most of our history, but it is something that I think that is embedded within our nature. Um, and it, I agree. I, I don't think the, the, the fact that we're different is, is going to hold us back anymore, given that, um, thankfully, uh, many institutions in America are looking to live up to, um, the, the diversity that this country promised. So I, I think, um, I just fully agree. And I think it is, as you said, high time. Um, Manmeet, this was a wonderful conversation. You are someone that is uh, eclectic, um, thoughtful, and, um, you know, I could probably talk to you for another two or three hours on four or five different subjects. Um, But before we end the conversation, I I would want to ask, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Well, I will um, close with a beautiful story um, with my travels and engagements. Uh, I always share this. Uh, we were on our way after one of our trips in New Delhi uh, to the airport. And um, it was Wednesday around about 10, 1030. We had dinner. We were coming out, heading towards the airport. And I saw a little sick boy who was selling keychains on a week, late night, on a week night, you know, his hair, you know how that 10 p.m. patka is all the way back, there's hair coming out, and uh, he had the, these this dusky eyes and, you know, dried hair, and but he was cute, and he just came to me, he's like, sir, will you buy a keychain, et cetera, et cetera. And I being, I being... Me being me, I've got 11 nephews and nieces in, in uh, Maryland. And, and when I count my cousins, we've got like 60 plus nephews and nieces in the mid-Atlantic area. So you have to be an uncle. <laughs> an uncle. So I told him, I'm like, um, what are you doing on a weeknight? Don't you have homework to do? Why don't you go home? And, and Harpreet was in the back. And I'm like, Harpreet, give me a hundred rupee uh, 
bill. And what was that? It was like two bucks at that time. And I gave it to him and I said, now go home and, uh, you know, call it a day. And Gurvin, I'm telling you, he humbled me. And this high horse that I was on, he just brought me down to earth. And he goes to me, he's like, sir, I do not beg. Oh, wow. I was like blown away, dude. I had tears in my eyes. I was like, wow. man, this guy might not know his history. He might not be good at math, but man, his gut and his integrity and deep down, you know, in his veins, he has self-respect. And that sick integrity is what makes it just amazing that it doesn't matter whether you're impoverished, you cannot rob a sick man of his or sick woman of her dignity. So even in the you know, even when you read the story of the Leaf Singh Son on that ship, on that uh, on the liner that took him towards uh, America, just the amazing stories of these people who persevered through the toughest times. And on a weeknight, they held their head high and they helped humanity, whether they were in the jails during Gunanik's time. So these instances... I draw lots of inspiration from from them. There are good days and bad days where I'm like, screw it, man. The six don't deserve my time. I should just enjoy my time and I don't want to be a part of the community. And there are those days where you take these positive examples and say, hey, I can, you know, <laughs> you have your ups and downs, right? And I yeah, have yeah, mine. Yeah. And then uh, these stories renew your faith and just tell you to brush up and keep fighting the good fight because when you're 70, 80, you will look back and say, hey, I did my part and, and uh, reflect. So I ask all of the listeners, uh, get engaged, educate yourself, take a few days off. It's okay, but don't disengage. Just just keep keep walking and, and uh, helping. That was beautiful. Manmeet, thank you very much. Thank you, Gurvin. I'm here when you need me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform, and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month. And of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.